0: Welcome back to Living on a Changing Planet. My name is Carter Powis. I'm a climate scientist and economist from Toronto, Canada. And I am joined today, as always, by my illustrious co-host, Dr. Patrick Kennedy-Williams. Patrick, how are you? (laughs)
1: Well, you have to stop introducing me that way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm well, I'm well, Carter. Or we could make it so that by the end of the season, you have like seven superlatives in front of your name. (laughs) My
1: name is long enough, that's the problem.
0: And we haven't even added in your hereditary (laughs) title Okay. In the very first episode of this series, we interviewed a gentleman by the name of Joe Duggan. And Joe put together this amazing project where he canvassed some of the world's leading climate scientists and asked them a very simple question. How does climate change make you feel? One of the things we learned from this project is that Many climate scientists draw an enormous amount of hope from the global youth activist movement. And so we thought it was appropriate in this episode to interview one of the leaders of that movement. But before we do, I'm going to out myself as just the world's biggest nerd. I've been rereading The Lord of the Rings recently, and I came across this quote like two days ago, which I thought was just perfect to start this episode. And I promise this is not going to become a habit. But the quote is Such is often the way of the deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. Now, if that doesn't describe the global youth activist movement, I don't know what does. So, with that said, Patrick, would you like to introduce our guest today?
1: I would love to Carter and and uh, I love that you're you've obviously spent enough enough time here in Oxford uh, that you've started quoting Lord of the Rings. It's a it's an affliction that we have here. You've been contaminated.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> At the end of this episode I'm going to need a prescription. <laughs> I wish I was cool enough to know what the cure for nerdiness is, but I I really don't. <laughs>
1: You've got the bug. It's excellent. So listen. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be introducing our guest today. She's someone that I've had the honor really and privilege of being able to collaborate with over the past few years in various ways, shapes and forms. And I keep seeing her on screens and uh, documentaries and uh, hearing her voice on the radio and seeing her in front of rooms of highly influential people delivering this crucial message. You're right, she is one of the global leaders of the youth climate activist movement. And I'm just so thrilled that she's able to give us some time. So we're speaking today with Mitzi Janelle Tan. Mitzi is the convener and spokesperson for Youth Advocates for Climate Action Philippines and an organiser for the Fridays for Future International, uh, where she focuses primarily on uh, MAPA, which are the most affected people, and areas. And this is something we're going to be doing a proper deep dive into today. Mitzi, hello, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm going to start with the question that we're going to be starting with for all of our guests this season, which is, tell me a little bit about how you came to learn for the first time about climate change. And tell me about your emotional journey in doing so.
2: So the first time I learned about climate change and climate science was in school when in elementary school they were teaching us about greenhouse gases and global warming and um, talking to us about the carbon dioxide emissions but the reason behind it that they said was because of people smoking and people not turning the lights off Um, and they talked about (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) they talked about ice melting and polar bears but They didn't tell us about how the typhoons that we were growing up experiencing in the Philippines was climate change. So in a way, I learned about climate change in a way that was so disconnected that I didn't even realize that what we were experiencing was climate change. But because I had this whole, I had a lung problem and I had a health problem when I was growing up and I knew smoking was bad for me. And because my teachers told me that it was smoking behind the climate change, I actually would go up to strangers at a really young age and tell them about carbon dioxide emissions and global warming and all of this, only to find out much later on when I grew up that it's not really smoking and turning lights off. That's behind the reason. And so there's a lot of learning to happen um, that needed to happen. Um, So in a way, I learned about climate change at that age, but I learned about the climate crisis. And I learned about how what we were experiencing was the climate crisis. When I was much older and I was already an activist, I was able to talk to an indigenous leader of our land And that conversation that I had with him was the reason why I decided to be an activist. And then because of that, I actively started to look into the environmental crises that we were experiencing. And that's when I found out about the climate crisis, fossil fuel industries, and all that. So it was kind of like learning climate change in school, but it wasn't really climate change. It was more of the words and, like, I guess the numbers behind it, but not, like, the actual impacts. And then later on, when I was able to learn about the impacts.
0: I'd like to hear a bit about the conversation. So with the, oh Sorry, go ahead, Patrick. Yeah, do you know, sorry, you you're you, No, you cry. This, is what ha- this is what happens, you see. He just he does this, jumps in. Go on, go on. <laughs> I'd like to hear how the conversation went with the indigenous leader. Clearly, if that's what convinced you to become an activist, it was very powerful.
2: Um, So I was talking to the Lumad indigenous people and he told me about how they were being harassed and displaced and militarized and killed. And with the Philippines being one of the most dangerous countries in the world for being an environmental defender and activist it just made that more real and then he said something so simple and it was just that that's why we have no choice but to fight back and it was the simplicity of the way he said it the way that there was no question about it that we have no choice but to fight back even if there are risks in fighting back that I realized that I had to join the fight as well Like, right? and when I learned more about the climate crisis it kind of help me understand that you know we all have no choice we have to fight back
0: okay so you first learned about climate change by being taught that it was being <laughs> that it was caused by smoking later on you were inspired by it sounds like the the courage of these indigenous people in standing up to protect their lands in the face of you know persecution and possibly death to explore more deeply the environmental issues in the Philippines. You discovered the climate crisis. The one thing you haven't covered yet is how did that all make you feel?
2: So I guess this is where it gets tricky because the first time that I learned about climate change, it was anger on a personal level because I knew that this thing that was supposedly causing the climate crisis, we know it's not true, but as a kid, I didn't know that. was hurting my health and the planet's health. And then later on, when it was that second time around and I learned about what was actually happening and I realized that the fear that I had growing up during that time of my childhood, when I was experiencing the typhoons and I realized much later on that it was the climate crisis, it kind of brought that back and it said, it made me feel that that fear that I had because I knew it was hurting my personal health when I was a kid, it got doubled because then I understood that it wasn't just my personal health because of my lung problems, but it was actually the typhoons that I experienced, that my community experienced, that my family and friends experienced growing up that made the climate crisis so dangerous. And then there was an even deeper understanding in the second time around that the reason behind it is not because of people not turning their lights off, but because of the inaction of government leaders because of the greed of, you know, multinational companies and fossil fuel industries. There was a deep anger and feeling of betrayal that happened when I was learning about the climate crisis, because it almost seemed like we were left behind on purpose, that every time there was a typhoon growing up, national leaders and local leaders would say that, you know, what can we do? These are typhoons. These are natural events there's nothing to do but then later on learning that there is something that we could have done you know there is something and people that's behind these events they're not natural events they're happening because of the profit-oriented system that we have so there was a lot of anger and confusion when I was starting to learn that and there was a lot of grief also and the grief actually I didn't come to terms with it until much later on I didn't really allow myself to grieve for so long. It was mostly just anger for a good amount of time um, when I was learning about the climate crisis.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. During the recording of this episode, Mitzi was having some issues with the internet connection in Manila. So at this point, she had to drop and rejoin. You'll note when she rejoins, her audio quality is much better. But while we're in this little intermission, I thought it was the perfect time to address a quick science question, which is, we've heard Mitzi say so far that the typhoons that she lived through as a young child in the Philippines were not natural events, they were climate change. What did she mean by this? The first thing I'll say is, typhoons, which are just hurricanes that occur in the Pacific, absolutely would occur on a planet without climate change and they did occur long before human caused climate change began so in that respect they are natural events what mitzi is referring to is the demonstrable relationship between human caused climate change and the intensity of hurricanes and typhoons so climate change is making these storms more intense more damaging And it does that in three ways. Very briefly, the first way is warmer air holds more water. And this is something that anyone who's ever taken a shower should intuitively understand. And I really hope that that's all of you. If you take a cold shower, the bathroom stays the same. If you take a hot shower, the bathroom gets humid and steamy. And that's because hot air can hold more water. For every 1 degree Celsius you increase air temperatures, you can hold about 7% more water vapor in that air. So this is not only true of bathrooms, it's also true of hurricanes. If you heat up the air that makes up a hurricane or a typhoon, it can hold more water, which means it can rain more, which means it's more likely to cause flooding. So that's the first way that climate change is making these storms more intense. Secondly, storm surge, which are the waves that that precede a storm as it makes landfall, are becoming more damaging because of sea level rise. Because sea levels are higher, these waves hit the shore at a higher level and can cause more damage. So that's the second way. And the third way that climate change is making storms more damaging is by increasing The amount of energy in the storm. You need to remember that heat and energy are just two words for the same thing. So, the more heat or the more energy you put into a storm, the faster it can move. And indeed, we've seen a statistically significant increasing trend in the number of storms reaching category three to five over the past four decades. So, climate change is not making these storms happen. It's not making them more frequent, but what it is doing is making them more intense or more damaging. And this is what Mitzi was referring to when she said these typhoons were not natural events. They were amplified or made worse by climate change. So with this said, we're going to shift the focus back to Mitzi, where it should have been in the first place, and pick up where we left off. So Mitzi, you gave us a great answer about the anger and grief that you've struggled with throughout your climate journey. What have you done to stay sane? What have you done to manage these emotions effectively other than, you know, do more activism?
2: I think something that really helped me not spiral is to actually letting myself feel the emotions because there was this one moment I remember. Um, it was right after the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement and like just two months after that, and uh, we just did a huge campaign on fighting for 1.5 degrees Celsius, etc. And then like two months after that, there was like a report from Australia saying that 1.5 degrees was no longer possible. And it just felt like I was tired from all the organizing. And we were just saying fight for 1.5. And our whole thing is listen to the science. And then suddenly there's this scientific report saying that 1.5 isn't possible. And I was lost. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how I could handle things. I didn't know. I tried to do more activism, like as you were saying, but then it wasn't leading anywhere because I didn't know what I needed to do and a friend actually told me that I should just let myself grieve because there is something that I am grieving for there is something that I've lost and there's something that's being taken away from us and I think that was one of the first times I actually kind of just allowed myself to cry about climate change like all the other times it's like a frustration like if I would cry it was because I was frustrated or you know other things but this was a time when I actually just acknowledge that the reason behind my tears was because of the climate crisis and that fear and it helps me in general to just do that with my feelings because then you realize that again it is a valid response to the climate crisis you're like the climate anxiety that we're feeling isn't some overblown reaction to something it is very valid um and, you know, a few months later, like a lot of other scientific reports debunked the 1.5 degree Celsius thing. So that also helped. But um, <laughs> um, but but it is really mostly activism that helps me uh, not spiral. And also knowing that my anger and my sadness doesn't just come from a place of anger and sadness, but comes from like a place of love. And so that joy, I think, is what brings me back every time because I realize and I remember that I'm not doing this alone, that I have a community that I'm doing it with. And I think that's one of the most crucial things that I, that anyone, I think, needs if you're dealing with something like this.
0: That's such an amazing answer. <laughs> I'm always amazed at how much of a negative feeling can be caused by being upset that you're feeling that way. So, you know, you're you're anxious that you're anxious, or you're you're angry that you're angry. And if you just try and give up control of how you feel and let those emotions arrive, it makes things a lot easier. I think that's such, such an awesome point. So thank you for raising that. The other thing I love that you raised is this idea of not feeling alone in your struggles, knowing that there are other people out there that understand what you're going through. I don't know, Patrick, if you Want to talk about this from like a a clinical standpoint, but I think that's such a such a powerful intervention i'd be really curious to hear your take on it
1: I think a big part of it is how the person is is well there's a there's a sort of clarifying process i think when you, it depends how you share it. it's a clarifying process if you're if you're kind of um, if you see your thoughts and ideas written down in front of you, or you hear them played back to you, or you hear somebody else repeat them back to you in the way they've understood them. It kind of, it, it clarifies, but it also sort of diffuses, you know, it's like this, this internal thing that you've been struggling with and wrestling with. It just allows you to, it creates that physical and emotional distance from it. Um, and can help you kind of, I know the sort of mindfulness people would would say, you know, it, it it lets you occupy that, observer mind or we sometimes call it self as, as, as context. It gives you you, objectivity. Yeah. It pulls you, it pulls you, it 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 gives you, it allows you to look at it from a, from a new
0: perspective, perhaps. I feel like there's also something else just knowing that you won't have to face something alone or knowing that you're not insane, (laughs) that there are other people that are also worried about what you're worried about. Uh, I think there's just a, a profound comfort there.
1: Yeah. And, you know, strong uh, strong emotions can be isolating, right? And sometimes some of the thoughts and fears that we've had about climate change and the climate crisis can be isolating as well, particularly if they're not shared by your immediate family or the people you share your home with or your friends. And we saw this, you know, COVID was like an isolation amplifier, right? It kind of added this whole new level of forced isolation on top of all of these feelings. And Mitzi, I loved one of the things that you told me when we interviewed you for our book was how you found this connection with people who were you know truly international and I loved how you said uh you could only ever see like the top half of their body or not even not even that you could see their head and shoulders um and that's all you knew of them but it didn't matter because you were you found a way of connecting with young activists around the world and people who were concerned about the climate crisis even though they couldn't leave their leave their homes. And I mean, this is, this is key, right? It's about how we form these connections. And obviously we can connect through people or we can connect over an idea or guardianship over a place, or we can connect through activism or by communicating onto the page or onto the canvas. And Missy, it, it, I've always thought this about you that you, you've found a way and you continue to find a way of creating almost a sort of emotional playbook for people who are involved in the climate space. And one of the things I love to hear you talk about is how you manage those times when a project doesn't quite come together, right? Or you don't gain the traction or impact that you hope for with some public-facing work or some piece of activism or or trying to raise awareness on an issue. And this is something that I... And it, a problem, we, we think of it as the dejection issue, um, how to handle that. It's not even fair to call it a setback. It doesn't even seem to to quite do it justice. The profound disappointment that can come from when these sorts of projects don't come together. And, you know, it's kind of disappointment times 1,000 because it's not just a personal disappointment, but it's a disappointment with such a wider meaning. Uh, But of course, these are natural parts of the process for all of us, you know, that not every project goes to plan. And so how have you, what, what ways have you found or your community found of, managing those kind of disappointments?
2: I remember the exact moment that I started to break down. It was really just breaking down because it was in a Zoom call And then someone mentioned it like so casually, they were like, oh, by the way, guys, in case you haven't seen, there's this report about 1.5 not being possible. And then the topic changed so quickly. And I was just like, I turned my camera off. I turned my microphone off. And I was just like, wait, what? What's happening? And I started texting other people in the call. And was like, did you hear the same thing that I did? It's like, is that really what's happening? And then... I just started crying. I just started bawling my eyes out cuz that was the year that there were so many typhoons happening and then we just had that campaign and then this news just hits you and it's so casual too and there, there's no processing of what the news said. There's no I didn't get the link to what the thing was. So it was really just that those few words. It was so difficult to process. And I remember it was a few day, quite a few days of crying actually and then After that, it was okay. It was, we had a lot of calls inside the movement um, to just express our emotions and talk about what was happening, to talk about what we were experiencing. Um, And then after that, it was like just a few days of silence and quiet. And then we were like, okay, what are we gonna do now? What's next for us? And then someone actually told me something so important to me that I really hold on to, and they said that. If 1.5 isn't possible, then we're gonna fight for 1.51. 1. Then we're gonna fight for 1.52, 1.53. We're just gonna keep fighting because that is what's important. Because that is what we need to ensure that you know, as little p as to minimize the suffering as much as possible. And that is kind of what gave me hope again, and that gave that gave me an understanding again. And again, it came back to community. It came back to people, uh, other people telling me. What to do, you know? The other telling, other people being there for me and holding me in an embrace, and while I was crying my eyes out.
0: Mitzi, that's that is such an important point. Thank you for raising that. I think many people who are concerned about climate change suffer under this misconception that the one point five degree target or the two degree target uh, are cliff edges, and that if we pass them. It's immediate runaway warming, and it's the end of civilization, uh, just Armageddon. And the science doesn't support that. The science does support that every fraction of a degree we warm the planet, the suffering of everyone on its surface increases non-linearly, meaning each fraction of a degree that we warm the planet causes more suffering than the last fraction of a degree. So it's very important that we meet these targets, but if we don't, it's not instant Armageddon. And people seem to really struggle to hold in their head this idea that that's possible. It seems to either be, well, it's the end of the world or it's not a problem at all. There's no space for anything in between those two. But what the science does support is that, in fact, it is in between those two. It's a very, very important problem. Uh, So thank you for raising that. In fact, I think this point is so important that next week we're going to interview Dr. Miles Allen, who is one of the coordinating lead authors on the IPCC's special report on 1.5 degrees. So, if any of our listeners are interested in the Paris Agreement targets and what they mean and the science behind them and how they should inform what we worry about, we're going to tackle that next week. Something else I'd love to talk about, Mitzi, is um you know I'm from North America and in North America probably the the most visceral climate experience you can have is if you live on the west coast and you experience the massive forest fires that are happening with increasing severity it, Patrick is from England there they're having very unusual very severe summer heat waves uh, and and that's sort of like the most tangible um, impact of climate change. I think a lot of people listening to this call, particularly in, in North America and Europe, have never lived through a typhoon or some of the climate impacts that are happening in other places of the world that are just far more severe than anything that we've lived through. I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what it's like to live through a typhoon, just so people can better understand that where you live on the planet really does determine your climate experience. And just because you happen to live somewhere in the world where you haven't felt the presence of climate change much in your own life doesn't mean, one, that it's not happening to someone else in a big way, but two, that it's not coming for you in the future because it is.
2: I think one of the problems when we talk about the climate crisis is we make it seem like it's just the extreme weather events and the let's say, the rains and the floods that come with it. But it's also because our society in the Philippines has not been developed so that we're not able to adapt to it. So that means that I grew up being afraid of drowning in my own bedroom because the floods would come in. And the evacuation centers, they're not built to be evacuation centers. So if we have people and communities that are evacuated there, These are schools, churches, and gyms. And usually this will flood too because they're not supposed to be evacuation centers. They weren't built to be climate resilient. So we don't have those climate resilient infrastructures. And so that compounds the problem that's already existing. It means that, you know, growing up, we would lose our electricity a lot if there were strong winds. And so I'd have to be doing my homework by the candlelight or we'd be listening to a battery powered radio to listen if we had to evacuate or if the our family in the other cities, how they were doing. You know, um, A lot of times people would be stranded on their rooftops just waiting for hours, sometimes days to be evacuated. Because of the floods that are happening. And it's difficult to get to them. Because of all the debris. Because of the, the um, typhoons. Because of the flooding. Because of the rains. And it's. The, the the floods. They reach up to the third floor of buildings sometimes. And the winds are so strong. Sometimes the winds are scarier than the actual rain. Because the winds are so strong. That it's blowing away rooftops. Um, so those are like the different possible experiences and a lot of those experiences are already already pretty privileged um so it's even worse for those who are more economically marginalized
1: you're bringing us back to such an an important point that we're not just talking about the weather and all the climate you know that this is this is a a whole systems issue and it 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 brings me to something I, i was really wanting to ask you about as well which is almost as a sort of a bit of a bit of an instructor really in terms of what we can all be doing so you know certainly our experience in europe and north america is very much one that's dominated by a north american or eurocentric narrative right and there's a huge there's a huge disproportionate problem there not least because we're often the least affected because we have you know the systems in 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 place that you talked about not having it in the same way in the philippines but you know, one of the, one of the things you always, I remember you saying to, to me a while ago was, you know, don't act on someone's behalf pass the mic. And this this, this past the mic idea has just re- always resounded so powerfully for me. And so, what can, what can we and should we be doing, or how how should we be communicating? What should, you know, to to make sure that as best we can. If you know, if we're listening from North America, if we're listening from Northern Europe, if we're listening from Australia, you know wherever it is. What can we be doing to really support and amplify the voices um, from MAPA?
2: I think it's so important to always highlight the stories of resistance and not just the stories of the impact. Because so often we are reduced to the sad story. Um, I remember there were huge floods in Germany and a lot of media and people being interviewed were saying that this is normal in Asia or this is normal in the global south, but not here in Germany. And so people of color are, and people from the global south are often reduced to the victims and the resistance that happens in our countries, the, the fighting back that happens in our countries because we've experienced so much um, is never, almost never highlighted. Well, it's starting to get highlighted now, but still not enough. And because of that, there comes a very saviorist attitude to people who are being impacted by the climate crisis. When really, it is the people who are most impacted who know what needs to be done and needs what, what needs to change. Because we know what we know how it looks, we know what um, we've experienced it. So it's working with the people who are most affected that really needs to happen in a lot of spaces. Um, I think it's also really important to, again, always just understand that everyone in every community has a very different experience. So someone in another country or even someone in the Philippines can have a completely different experience as mine. And that's why there is no one like MAPA experience. There is no one MAPA voice or one Global South experience or one Global South voice when it talks about the climate crisis. And understanding that diversity um, of the experiences and of the ways of fighting back, I think, is so important because then you're able to showcase the different ways that people are fighting back and that people are changing the way, like, the world, really. Um, and so, that's so important because then you can also see how you can best collaborate with each of the different campaigns, each of the different activists that are um, doing all these different things. And there is something to be done for everyone, Um you know, there is no one form or shape of activism. It's all valid as long as you're not working with the fossil fuel industries, then you're doing something good. Um, so yeah.
1: That's such a great answer, Mitzi, and possibly one of the more important um, contributions we'll, we'll have throughout this series. Um, and I wish we could, this is probably an episode in, in itself, actually, for us to help to understand better um, how to kind of cross that, that North-South divide and, and and be able to amplify voices uh, in MAPA regions more successfully. Let's zoom in now, though, and think about you as an activist and you as a, as a person. And one of the other things that I've always been really taken, taken by or impressed by is, is your uh, emphasis on self-care. And I, I think it's fair to say that, that the emphasis on self-care is something that it really impresses me about the, the youth climate activist movement generally uh but particularly you. Um in our conversations so far, you've 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 talked a lot about kind of quite specific ways that you have been able to incorporate the, the necessity, the necessity for self-care into your into your daily life. How do you how do you do that? What does self care look like for you?
2: I think one of the first things that helped me figure out self-care was seeing other people talk about how they're doing it, so I love this opportunity. Um, I will also say that I'm still figuring it out and I think that's important to note so that people don't feel like there is a certain time when I will understand self-care. I, I don't think anyone will ever actually get there perfectly. <laughs> but. Um, um, This will sound like the bare minimum, but I'm so proud of myself for doing this. I've recently stopped checking my emails on the weekends. um, And sometimes I let it go all the way until Monday. And I feel like that is such a bare minimum thing to say. And I don't know if it's something that mostly younger people have a problem with because I know older generations, it takes them two to three days before responding to emails. Um, But for us, I feel like because we're so used to like that constant instant messaging it's like oh there's an email I have to reply right right now um so I've, I've you know been able to overcome that need and I've stopped checking um emails on the weekend um, which sounds like such a small thing but it's it, it's helped me so much to just disconnect and to just go outside I think especially during the pandemic when we were stuck indoors there was no longer a time for work and rest because everything kind of blurred because everything was online. So while it was great that we were able to connect and everything, it was also like, oh, 3 a.m. sudden call. Sure, because I'm at home. There's no excuse, Nati. There's no work time anymore. Um, So it was setting boundaries like that for me. and, And I think each boundary will change per person and it's i think it's definitely going to be a long process i think one of the first boundaries i made um when i started working internationally was that i stopped going to calls after 1am which i think is like not a great i feel like the, the things i'm saying are like bare minimums and things that like older generations will be like why would you be doing work calls after 1am like but but it was something that i was doing um Um, So I don't know if I'm saying anything groundbreaking to people, but I think it is finding those boundaries because it's easy to say like, oh, take a walk outside, listen to music, watch a favorite show, paint. But I think, you know, you could do those things, but they're not the way that they're not the best way to care for yourself because I was doing all that, but still taking like 1 a.m. calls and burning myself out because of those calls. It wasn't a lack of rest time for me but more of a lack of stopping work um that was my problem um for the longest time still kind of now i'm working on it but um um, so i think it's really that it's like understanding which which parts of your work is too much and a lot of times you end up doing that because you care so much and it feels like it gives you so much energy and that's why you want to keep doing it even if it's like insanely like not good for your body anymore. So it's, I think, understanding that balance, um, which is a learning process, I think.
1: Yeah. Uh, Patrick, it, I
0: was, it makes me think. Oh, go on. I was going to say, based on our email response times, we must be part of that older generation Mitzi's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. <laughs> We're practically dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> we're
1: definitely that's kind of straddling point aren't we we're trying to work out which group which group do we belong to maybe sometimes mom get back right, straight, right away
0: sometimes there's a little bit of time i don't know <laughs> well unfortunately i think we are out of time mitzi i know you are very busy and it is getting late in manila and given we've just talked about self-care and the importance of not scheduling super late calls i think we need to end the episode Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I think this has been just a wonderful second installment to this first season. And best of luck with all of your projects going forward.
2: No, thank you so much. Because I don't actually get to talk about climate anxiety in this way a lot. Like a lot of times it's just climate anxiety, boohoo, climate trauma, sad. And never like what do we do about it what can we do about it why is it happening you know like really important discussions about climate anxiety and climate trauma and I think it's I still do the work where it's just like "boo hoo, sad because I know that it's important to get it out there but I'm like constantly pushing that we don't just stop there and that more and more we talk about what you can do about it so that people also feel empowered and not just like informed that there's this bad thing happening but there's you you don't you know nothing like how do you do that's it
0: Okay, episode two done. Mitzi Janelle Tan, such a fantastic conversation. Why don't we jump into my very first question for you? So, this is something we talked about a little bit at the end of Joe Duggan's episode, but I think it became a major theme of today's conversation, which is this idea that you're not in control. Of how you feel, and so effective emotional management is much more about one, not trying to fight any particular feeling, because that just adds to the the stress that you're already feeling, but two, um, focusing in on the space between emotion and action, because what is within your locus of control is how you respond to how you feel. And so if you can sort of be present in that space and be aware of how your emotions are affecting your actions, whether or not that's productive, and if not, you know, what you need to do to change that, uh, it seems like that's really the, the key intervention. But I don't know, have I butchered that? Did I use the right psychological terminology?
1: Oh, it sounded ac- incredibly astute Carter your 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 description of that and uh yeah it's um much as we would love to be able to control our emotional our emotional response let's say um it's incredibly hard to directly do that and so we have to you know to some degree surrender to a little bit of Uh, uncontrollability right when it comes to our when it comes to our emotions and this is one of those things that when we were sitting down in the early days and trying to work out what kind of therapeutic approaches might be more beneficial for people and also communities um, when it comes to engaging in the climate crisis this became one of the most pertinent points I think um, is that we're dealing with an emotion an emotive topic you know, and I think this, the conversation with Mitzi really highlighted that, especially when it is affecting your safety on a day-to-day basis. And you're seeing, you know, distressing change in the communities around you. And we we talk sometimes about the struggle in the therapy room, you know, this idea of uh, trying to control our emotional experience and then we can start to quite quickly, if we if we aren't able to do that, which again, most of the time it's incredibly difficult to control our emotional experience. So then we sort of create this sort of negative feedback loop where we start to then criticize ourselves for the fact that we aren't able to control our emotional experience. And we start to struggle against not only the feeling itself, but we contextualize and we start to think, well, what is the fact that I'm having this feeling right now say about me and the fact that I can't control it? And what if this feeling doesn't go away in the future? And it then it's almost like if the feeling is like the nucleus, there are all, all of a sudden all these electrons flying around it, you know, and it becomes so much amplified and louder than the, than the feeling it, it, itself. And um, that was a nerdy metaphor. <laughs> I, I did take some science classes back in the day.
0: <laughs> so what we're talking about is worrying about worrying. Yeah,
1: right. Meta. Yeah, meta worry. Exactly. Meta. 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 Kind of meta experience. So we start to then. You know, this is this is the, the complexity of the human emotional mind, isn't it? That we we then kind of turn our attention towards and critique often our emotional experience, and um, so this is, yeah, this is this then becomes an, an an incredibly important process, allowing emotions to be. And what's really interesting is you know we're talking about this in a really individualized way. You know, how can I just allow my emotions to exist as they are? but this happens so much at a collective level as well and i guess that's kind of part of the show right it's about it's about normalizing this for groups of people but how often you know i've he- I've, I've heard people describe so often times when um they almost say they were in a a meeting or a group of people and there was some sort of emotional expression and it's almost like the, the group didn't quite know how to kind of hold that or what to do with it or how to process it um and so that all of a sudden there's a sort of collective effort to try to suppress any sort of emotional reactivity or any sort of emotional material. And, um, so this isn't, this extends so far beyond the individual as well. And when I've, when I've seen group change and and group responses to all of this happen most successfully, it's when they've created a kind of acceptance of, an a, and a allowance of, uh, some form of emotion to enter the conversation.
0: Okay. Wait, but, let let's go back for a second to the individual case because I, I wanna I wanna I wanna be annoying and push on something. We we talked about the importance of letting letting yourself feel emotions. What about the second half of the concept that I was trying to summarize? The identifying the link between how you feel and what you do. You know, if you're feeling you're feeling down, say. Um then you have this question, do I still go out with my friends tonight even though I don't feel like it? I feel really sad. Do I still get out of bed in the morning? Do I still go to the gym and work out? How how are how if someone is dealing with a very strong emotion which makes them not want to do the things that they know they should be doing? Are there steps like a a particular set of steps that someone can take to um to address that to to work on breaking the link between emotion and action even if they can't make that emotion change or go away i imagine i imagine it must come back to maybe this idea again of incremental exposure of of starting with a small the smallest possible task that you you don't feel like your emotions will allow you to do and then you know building upwards from from there yeah and you know you're um
1: yeah you're so right to focus in on that 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 moment between how we feel and what we do there's a there's a quote by Viktor Frankl who wrote man's search for meaning and tried to understand humanity from within uh, concentration camps and, and 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 in his life following that and it's it, we've kind of i think in the therapeutic community have really sort of come to come to see this this quote as as really symbolizing that way of thinking that you just described and and as, as well that the sort of tool that is born from it therapeutically you know when he says between stimulus and response there's this space and then and that space might only be a microsecond but in that space is lies our power to choose our response and in our response lies uh our growth and ultimately in our 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 freedom as as a you know as humanity it might sound quite grand but essentially what it's saying is there is a gap between stimulus and response and we shouldn't try to control our emotions but what we can do is is learn how to respond to that reality as it exists which includes of course the emotions that we're experiencing sometimes you know and then in terms of the steps to take um (laughs) it's different for everybody of course but you know i think step one is to recognize you know, is to bring that kind of attunement and be able to recognise and and chart the landscape of your experience in that moment. This is why things like uh, mindfulness-based approaches and and meditation have been shown time and time again to be so beneficial, not just in the therapy room, but also in terms of climate anxiety. It's because it brings that mindful attention to our experience uh, non-judgmentally as best as we can. And then just start to, at, that, at that moment, then. Once you've done that observation exercise, you can ask yourself those series of questions, you know, is this, are these thoughts serving me right now? Are they, you know, are they helping guide me towards my values and towards committed action, right? Are these thoughts going to help me act in my best interests and in the best interests of the planet? And what have I done in the past that I know has been able to, it's allowed me to be able to, to, to move past this in the moment. And sometimes, uh, sometimes that involves delaying doing anything. Sometimes the best kind of tools I've heard people go away and, and learn how to implement in their lives is just to be able to say, actually, I'm feeling super triggered and activated by this right now. I prob- but I also know that emotions, as uncontrollable as they are, are transient and temporary and they come and go. And I'm going to therefore give myself the permission to delay any sort of action or thinking around this until, I, until the emotions, you know, the, the intensity of the emotions have run their course. Uh, and and for, for for a lot of people, that can be the most empowering thing to do is to, is to be able to sh- say, kind of say to themselves, actually, I don't have to make a decision about this from within the experience, the the intense experience that's happening right now.
0: I'm really glad you said that because that's not something I ever would have said. It's very antithetical to my personality. I'm someone who, you know, craves control. So if I don't have control over how I'm feeling. I'm going to go fu- I'm going to go take control over my actions because it's you know it's it, it scratches the itch. Um yeah, let's maybe not dig too deep into that one. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, why don't we move on to my last question before we end the episode. This one a bit of a longer question, but an important one, I think. Right now there are mm. many conversations ongoing between the global youth activist community, and various types of institutions, companies, governments, schools. And I think it's often true that both parties walk away from these conversations frustrated. Youth activists, because they're demanding rapid and dramatic change from these institutions, the kind of change that's necessary to avoid the most catastrophic impacts of climate change. And the institutions, many of them want to change, but they feel constrained uh, in the extent and speed at which they can change by all sorts of different realities that maybe the youth activists don't appreciate or don't value the same way. And so, what I'd like to understand is is there anything from the body of psychological knowledge? that could help these two groups overcome some of these challenges and have more productive discussions you know i think
1: there's it might not be instantly obvious how to translate that kind of directness and singularity of purpose and into you know how do you change how do how do we change our organizational practice and structure um, and it is that change is going to need to be iterative I don't think that negates necessarily the value and importance of having that kind of, uh, view in the, in, in the boardroom. Right. And you know, I've, I've almost, I've almost, I've seen a lot, the opposite problem being true where again, we sort of uh, kind of touching what we talked about earlier. There's a real reluctance to have that level of emotional energy uh, being brought into discussions in a work context right in case it kind of uh in, in case it kind of asks difficult questions or or you know presents kind of challenging truths to the company and to the organization and and almost as a sort of collective avoidance of uh of very direct emotional conversations uh which i think the young youth climate activists movement are incredibly proficient at engaging with and so i think in in some ways I'm almost I'm almost reluctant to sort of advise against advise against
0: those kind of interactions you you're so right I should have been more specific with my question let me try rephrasing assuming that we want these kind of conversations to be emotionally intense because that serves a valid purpose and because the climate crisis should be <laughs> An emotionally intense topic to talk about, given what's at stake. Um, how do you have conver- how do you have conversations that are emotionally intense in a productive way? What's the right way to communicate when you feel strongly about something versus the wrong way? Like if you were a couples therapist and you were advising two people on how to have a better argument when both people feel quite strongly, what would you tell them?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not primarily a couples or systemic therapist, as we would say, but it comes into our work all the time, of course, because our relationships, particularly our more profound emotional relationships, have a huge bearing on our mental health. And there are different, there are different schools of thought and different ways of looking at interpersonal or interactional Um, psychology. And uh, I know that people have had a lot of success by looking at some of the ideas in nonviolent communication, for example, compassion focused therapy. And I think one of the, one of the, if we're talking about how to communicate in, with it, you know, in a, in any sort of context where there's an emotional intensity or an emotional investment, right? The, the balance to strike, I think, is you know we know from social psychology that if two people scream at each other, it's just going to ha- sort of harden, reinforce, and polarize their opinions on on that thing, and and people just they don't, they don't hear each other. But people respond really well to. Attempts, overt attempts by the other person to try to mentalize or try to empathize it to to their position, to try to at least demonstrate, even if they don't quite fully understand or or, or can't you know can't quite grasp where the other person's coming from, at least demonstrating an, an effort to try, and then you know being able to communicate enough in a non-confrontational way about why this thing matters to you.
0: Right. This reminds me. I read wants a description of how to do active listening properly and the the way to do it is set yourself a rule that you are not going to communicate anything about your position or opinions until you can repeat back to the other person how they're feeling in your own words to their satisfaction and I've applied this idea a couple of times in both my professional and personal life. And like you're saying that, (laughs) that can be magic because it really makes the other person appreciate that you're there to understand where they're coming from, not just to wait for them to finish talking so that you can start talking at them. And it's also a helpful tool because it gives you it forces you to pay attention to what the other person is saying, to really think about it, and that gives you all the information you need to understand half of the problem. And if you are in good faith trying to solve a problem with someone else, you need to understand where they're coming from. Otherwise, you're just trying to force your solution on them. And I think this actually ties into another great point. I've spent most of my career working on institutional change, both with regards to climate as well as outside of climate. And one thing I can say about institutional change with high confidence is it's almost impossible to force an institution to change by coming in from the outside with some idea about how things should be and telling them that this is what they're now going to do. Institutions at the end of the day don't exist. They are just an idea held by a group of people. So changing an institution is exactly the same as changing the minds of a group of people. And the easiest way to do that is to co-create a solution with them so that they have ownership over... Not only do they have ownership over uh, the idea, the solution, it's also more likely that the solution that you create will be more effective because if you don't belong to that institution, you don't have all the information that you need... To figure out what the right path is going forward, so I think this also applies equally to interpersonal problems. You are not the other person. You there's no way for you to understand everything they're going through. So I, I just thought this was an awesome point, Patrick. Thank you for thank you for sharing. I think this is a great place to end this episode. Let's run Orlando's excellent outro. As a reminder, for those of you that are interested. Our intro and outro music was written by Orlando Higginbottom, also known as Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs. This track is called Broccoli, the neighborhood in North London, not the vegetable. It is the first track off of his EP, I Can Hear the Birds. Go check it out. It's fantastic. Next week, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Miles Allen, who is a professor of atmospheric physics at the University of Oxford. And one of the coordinating lead authors for the IPCC's special report on 1.5 degrees. So if you're interested in the Paris Agreement warming targets, if you want to understand the science behind them, what happens if we don't achieve them, what are the things we should worry about and what are the things we shouldn't worry about, we're going to cover all of this next week. I highly suggest you join us. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening.